Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together with these brothers and sisters this morning. We pray that as we read it and hear it, that we would not hear it or understand it as the words of man, but what it is, the very word of God, and that we would hear it and believe it and be changed by it, that we would be transformed into the image of Christ through your word and through the enabling power of your spirit. We pray these things so that none of us get any of the glory, but all of the glory goes to Jesus, our King. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's really good to be here with you this morning. Uh, The first thing I felt as I saw so many familiar faces and people that I have loved for a while was a profound sense of thankfulness. Thankfulness at what God is doing here. Thankfulness for the, this church being faithful in this area and thankful for the opportunity to open up God's word with you all this morning. Uh, when Jacob and his family left Northwest Bible Church to plant Grace Bible Church, his boys were just these wee little things Just kidding, they have never been small in their entire lives. But it's really good to see Jacob and his family, and it's really good to be with all of you as we get to look at 1 Peter this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter 2. Uh, So with me comes uh, just a word of welcome from all of our elders and from the congregation at Northwest. We pray weekly for you. We pray regularly for not only your leaders, but for you as a church, that your testimony of the gospel would grow in this area and that through you, many would come to know Jesus. So just welcome from our church and our leaders. We're in 1 Peter 2 this morning. I'm gonna read verses four through 12, and then we'll look at what God has for each of us in his word this morning, First Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. The beginning of a story gives you a good sense about what that story will be all about. 
I, as a father of three lovely young girls, has, I've read dozens of books with my girls. And we're kind of the highbrow literary sort of people. So one of the books that we love to read is a book with the first sentence that is Dragons Love Tacos. And that book gives you a really good sense. That first sentence gives you a really good sense about what the book is all about. Because as everyone knows, dragons love tacos. And the book is about dragons and their obsession with tacos. That's actually the entire plot. Like I said, real highbrow literary stuff. But what you, if you were to read that opening sentence, it gives you a really good idea of what that book is all about. If you were to read the opening Sentence, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, you get a really good idea about what's, what you're about to experience. You're going to go into a far-off universe and experience an intergalactic battle between an evil emperor and a courageous rebellion. If you were to read a story that began with an orphan boy whose parents were killed by a powerful dark wizard, you kind of know where that story is going that little boy is going to inevitably confront that dark wizard and save the wizarding world. When you read the beginning sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you just keep reading the opening verses. You see that not only is there a good God who created everything, but that good God wants his glory to be known and embraced all over the world. When you read a story that begins like that, you get a sense about what that story is all about. The Bible is the story of the gospel. And that story begins with a God who created all things to display his glory. The entire universe exists as a song to God's wisdom and power. Humanity, you and I, are created by God to lovingly enjoy him and joyfully exalt him. But that plan of God was disrupted by sin as it entered into the world. Sin disrupted that plan for the entire human race. After Adam's sin, the people God created for his glory, now, instead of living for his glory, live for their own glory. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, the entire human race is corrupted by this fall. But God's plan to expand his glory is not stopped by sin. His, the story of the gospel doesn't end with sin ruining God's original plan. Instead, the gospel story is about God creating a new people who love him and enjoy him. People who are now reconciled to him as their creator. And people who now, instead of living for the glory of their of themselves, live for the glory of God. So the story of the gospel is not stopped with sin. Instead, we see the story of the gospel now continuing and expanding. And God's purpose for his glory after the death and resurrection of Christ is realized not in Israel, but in the church. And that's what Peter tells us in this passage, that the church is God's people created to display and proclaim his glory. The church exists to advance the glory 
of God. That's the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them. Go into all the world so that God's glory expands to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In 1 Peter 2, we see that this great story, this great purpose of the gospel is explained in this passage We see that the gospel creates a people and that those people have a mission. And it's not a mission other than what we saw at the very beginning of this story. The gospel creates a people who proclaim the glory and the grace of God to others. And in 1 Peter 2, we see two pieces, two important pieces to this story. Peter tells us first, God creates a people. God creates a people. We see this in verses 4 through 9. Look at verse 4 again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The gospel creates a people. And if you were to look at these verses and ask, well, what kind of people does the gospel create? We're given an answer first. These people are connected. The gospel creates a people who are connected to one another. As you read this verse, you begin to realize that Peter is just throwing metaphors at you, left and right, that kind of explain what, how he understands the church, the people of God. And in verse 5, we see one of them. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. God's, the people that God has created with the gospel are people that are connected to one another. God's people are living stones being built together to be God's house. You're a connected people. Everyone who comes to Jesus, the living stone, is made, Peter tells us in these, verse, in these verses, is made into a living stone in God's spiritual house. Which means that as believers, as we come to Jesus, we are not to live in isolation but to live in this new community. I don't know if you've ever played the game Jenga. We love that, we love that game at our house. If it's like the, you get tiles and they're stacked three by three by three and you have to take one of the tile out and you have to set it on the top and eventually you've, you're hoping, if you're playing the right way, you've gotten to the point where there's one tile on one tile on one tile and it's really tall and it's very precarious and it's, uh, you, there's only one loser. That's why I like the game play with a group of people and there's one loser. You mock them. Loser. But the point of the Jenga is, is to get the tower to stack as tall as you can. And at some point, if you've done it rightly, you, every tile is connected to another tile. And you can't go any further because to remove one would to destroy the whole building. I, I actually think that's a pretty helpful understanding of what Peter says here. When he says that we are connected people. We are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And I think he wants us to understand that all of us are to be connected and all of us are indispensable. All of us are part of this house. Which means every piece relies 
on every other piece. Every stone is connected to another stone. God's people are connected, which means you exist as a Christian for others. You are meant to be connected and interdependent on other believers. You are a stone. But in another metaphor that Peter gives us, another image of the church, he doesn't say simply that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. He says that every believer is a part of a holy priesthood. So you exist for others, and what did a priest do? A priest served in the temple of God. You don't only, only exist for others as a connected stone. You exist for service. You are meant to be connected to the spiritual house, and you are, you are put in there to serve others. The gospel creates a people who are connected. And second, the gospel creates a people, Peter tells us in this verse, people who are chosen. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's people because we are chosen by God and precious to God. In verse 4, we are told that not only are we chosen, look at verse 4, we're told that Jesus is chosen. Excuse me, verse 6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. In verse, this verse, we're told that Jesus is chosen by God. But if you look at verse 4, you see that not only is Jesus chosen... But Jesus, the cornerstone of this spiritual house, was a living stone rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen by God. This verse helps us understand and make sense of an important aspect of our lives. You see, Scripture plainly teaches that you and I as believers are chosen by God. We are, we are precious to him and we are loved. And the greatest argument that you will feel internally as you try to comfort yourselves with the love of God, the unconditional love of God, is the suffering that you face. Peter addresses, if you were to look at the beginning of 1 Peter, and even in this passage, he addresses believers as exiles. Exiles in this world. And what do exiles experience in this world? They experience suffering. They experience pain. They experience rejection from family members and friends. And in the middle of our lives as exiles, it would be easy for us to think or to doubt the love of God. Peter uses Jesus as an example here, and it helps us. Because what are we told about Jesus? Jesus is chosen and precious to God. The Son of God is precious to the Father. But what did Jesus experience? Even though he was chosen by God, he was rejected. Even though he was loved by God, he was slain by hateful men. Jesus is loved of God and yet experiences suffering on our behalf. And then Peter looks at believers who come to Christ and he tells them that you are chosen by God and you are precious to him. God's people are loved unconditionally by God which is meant to be a source of hope and encouragement and strength in the middle of their suffering. God's people are chosen and loved. And if you are sitting here as a believer, 
and you are tempted, even for a moment, to make your choosing by God a source of pride in your life, ask yourself this question. Why was I chosen? Why was I chosen? Was I chosen because God saw something unique in me? That I was a, an indispensable element to his kingdom? That his house, his spiritual house that was going to be built was full of uggo stones until he got me. Now his stone looks great. Now this building looks great. If you're tempted to think that, I would argue that I, I would commend to you Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, as Moses speaks to the people of God who were chosen by God, he says to them, for you are a, a people holy to the Lord your God. Very similar language to what we have in First Peter. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. Right? All of this language now is coming back, back from First Peter into Deuteronomy or from Deuteronomy into First Peter. And then Moses looks at the people of God and he says to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. Christian, why, in the middle of all your suffering and pain, why are you chosen? Why does God love you? Because you are good? Because you are great? Because you are mighty? Because you are, you have anything in you? No, God loves you. And why does he love you? This Get this. If you don't walk away from anything in this passage, get this. Why does God love you? It is because the Lord loves you that he chose you. God loves you because he loves you. There's no bottom to it. There's nothing in you that caused it. There's no reason for it in you for God to love you. And yet, the infinitely holy, perfect, righteous judge of, and creator of all the universe has set his love on you. He loves you because he loves you. You have eternal life. You are adopted into his family. You have, are now a part of God's people. You are given a kingly inheritance. You are made perfect because God loved you and has shown you mercy. As the passage ends, once you were not a part of the people of God, but now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, God is in the gospel gathering a people to himself, people who are connected, who live loving, interdependent lives with one another, and people who are chosen, who know from the tips of their toes to the top of their head that they are loved by God. Now, you may be an unbeliever. You may not be a Christian, and you're gathering for worship with Grace Bible Church. We're so happy that you're here. And you may be looking, you may be here because you're looking into Christianity and you may be asking, this sounds pretty good. I can be assured of God's love. How do I get into this? Friend, if you're not a Christian and considering how to become a Christian and you want to be assured of God's love for you in Jesus, know that you don't get into this by working. You don't get into this by coming to the Lord's table later today. You don't get into it by giving or praying. You get into all of this simply by receiving it with open hands. You see, as this passage has already told us, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the house that God is building. And that stone was rejected by men. He was killed on a cross so that the sin 
debt that you have accrued all of your life would be placed on his shoulders. And the wrath of God that should have been on you was on him. So that you could receive the mercy of God, not by working, but in faith receiving what God has for you and Jesus. So there's an invitation to everyone from this passage. That you can get in on this house. You can receive this mercy. You can be a part of this people by trusting in Jesus. If you would like to do that, come talk to Jacob, talk to me. We would love to help point you to other scriptures that show us the truth of that. But this is the beauty of what God does for his people. The gospel creates a new community of people who know that they have spiritual life because God has lovingly chosen to show them mercy. God's gospel creates a people. Part two of this story. The gospel gives those people a job. The gospel gives those people a job. Look at verses nine. Look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As I mentioned, kind of in my introduction, I have three daughters, three girls, 975, and I remember the incredible, tumultuous upheaval of all of life that happened when our first daughter was born, right? It's, I don't know how, how you like talk to people. I know there's some people in the church, this church that have four or five or six kids and I, God bless you. Uh, my favorite analogy for people who have five kids is like, what's it like having the six? Just imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. That's having six kids. So we stopped at three. You know, that felt like a good number for us. But there is no transition like going from zero to one. It's impossible as five to six feels. Zero to one is different, right? It's all of life changes. But I remember the day our first daughter was born. We went to the hospital. I watched golf. Caitlin had a baby. It was great. And I remember the, the feeling when the, your baby comes out and they hand it to the mother for the first time. And you sleep in the hospital for the first night. You wake up about 36 hours later because you slept perfectly for a long time. You wake up and the, the biggest realization for me was when we were leaving and we weren't going to leave the baby at the hospital. Because I was like, oh man, this is great. You had a baby. Good job. Let's just go home. We'll have dinner tonight. It'll be great. No, you have to take the baby with you. Because having a child is a lot of work. For me especially, it was tough. It was, the labor was tough. It's a lot of work for Caitlin too, but it was really hard on me. And there's a, you might be tempted to think that after all of this work, the, your job is done when you have the baby and you can just go home. But no, you take the baby home with you. As a parent, the work doesn't end when the baby is delivered in many ways. The work is just beginning. They shouldn't call labor having the baby. They should call labor taking the baby home. The work doesn't really begin until you get your baby home. And I think that analogy is helpful here because it might be tempting for some of us to think, whoa, good, I am in the family of God. I've been born again. That's a huge sigh of relief. I can, I can just kind of relax and take it easy for the rest of my life. But the work doesn't end when you come into God's family, 
in a very real sense, the work that God is going to do through you begins. That's what Peter tells us in verse 9. You are a chosen race. You've been chosen by God. You're a royal priesthood. You, you at one time lived as an enemy of God, but now you serve God in his temple and in his house. You are a holy nation. You were once an enemy of God, but now you've been reconciled. You are a people for his own possession. And do you notice in verse 9 the word that? The word that in verse 9 might be the most important word in the entire passage. Because the word that tells you that everything you've now stepped into in Jesus, all of the blessings that you've received, you're you're being chosen, you're receiving mercy, you're being a part of this connected community, all of that is forced into a purpose, thrust into a purpose. You are a people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why does the church exist? Why have you been chosen and placed into this community? Why do you exist? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has created a new people. They are chosen and holy and royal. And he creates his people so that his purposes from the beginning of the world, would continue through them. The church exists to be on mission with God. The church exists not to be inward-looking and inward-focused. The church exists to proclaim his glory and grace outward. In the redemption that God provides in Jesus, our lives can be restored back to their original purpose. We were created to glorify God. Sin turned us into self-centered, self-glorifying sinners who seek their own glory. But the gospel recreates us into a people who proclaim the glory of God. Who proclaim God's glory and grace to others. We need, in all of our churches, to recapture the reality that every Christian has this responsibility. I love love the exhortation from Brian this morning, a good reminder that churches need elders. Churches need elders to lead them and feed them and teach them, but do not be deceived. It is not the elder's job to proclaim Jesus to the world. It is your job. It is your responsibility This is what God calls every Christian to. The entire church is called to lovingly and passionately live on mission. This is not just for our leaders. This is for all of us. So how do you do this? Right? Incredible passage. Incredible passage pointing us to any number of realities that are true for us in Jesus. But how do we do this? I want to end by being very practical. By practically considering what it would be like for each of us to live out this calling together. What will this look like in our lives? Do we need more programs? Do we need more organized ministries? Are churches failing to do this because we just don't have as many revival meetings anymore? What will living out this mission together as connected stones look like? I've been helped as I've tried to ask and answer this question from my own life and for the life of the church by a a book called Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. Uh, He he writes very fascinatingly about the 
the growth of the early church. You read the book of Acts, and you see that the early church grew explosively over the first several decades. Michael Green documents that the church in Acts grew at a clip at 40% a year for several decades. Just imagine what that would look like in your church if you grew 40% year over year over year. I mean, that, that would be explosive. They did this. Michael Green documents that the early church grew at a clip of 40% year over year for several decades. And all of it was happening in the face of regular persecution. Right? They, it's not like they had easy lives being Christians. They were persecuted by the Jews and then they were persecuted by the Roman Empire. But they grew. And how did they do it? Michael Green writes, the church's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by means of really well-marketed revival meetings. Did you know that? That's crazy. It's unbelievable. I didn't even know they thought about marketing at the, in the early church. No, that's not what he writes, by the way. I made that part up right now. It's not even in my notes. I just made it up. The church's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. Christian lay people shared Christ in homes, in wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They did it naturally and enthusiastically. How did the church grow? What, a, a guy who has written 500 pages on evangelism in the early church said the church's growth was primarily due to enthusiastic, passionate Christians who proclaimed the glory of Christ to everyone they met. They lived lives transformed by the gospel. Now, of course, in the book of Acts, we see there were formal missionaries and there were schools who trained people and we see some intentional work by churches. But the most, in, the most influential and effective means of sharing the gospel was Christians whose lives were transformed by the gospel sharing Christ with others. So very practically, I think as we look at their example, as we consider that call to each of us, I think I could say there are three essential ingredients to our lives being lived for the glory of Christ. One, we need to live like the people around us. I struggle with the word like there because I think I could use the word with. So if you, if you don't like the word like there, substitute with the word lift. We need to live with or like the people around us. You see, Peter is writing to a group of believers who, were, who are exiles. That's, that's one of his dominant pictures of the church. The church is exiles, which means we're not in our home country. We're in a foreign country. And as exiles, uh, it's easy for Christians, and almost Christians in every age have fought the tendency to retreat away from society and withdraw into itself. So from very early on in Christianity, there are groups of people known as monks. And they thought the best way to, to portray the glory of Christ to others was to never be around a person. That seems insane to me. And if you ask my wife, I could, do, I could be a monk for like 45 seconds. And I'd be like, okay, who am I talking to today? Right, but that's what the monks did. They thought that, okay, if the mission of God is going to advance. We need to focus on our holiness so the best way for me to be holy is to get away from all you sinners. But I don't think that's the strategy. 
There's always been a tendency for Christians to retreat away from society and withdraw into itself. But that is not how life looked like in the early church. That was not being in exile. The early church Christians worked and shopped and dressed in their community. They raised their children in the world around them. So I think as we consider what it is to live on mission for Jesus, Christians should participate in society, contribute to their neighborhoods and their communities. As one writer said, Christians should, at first glance, look reassuringly similar to the society around them. Like, we don't have to walk around in society and all, like, wear bags on our heads to say, I'm a Christian, so that we're really identified. No, we're not a cult. In some ways, we, as John tells us, we live in the world. I think that's the first thing we need to do. We need to realize that God has called us to live in and with and like the society around us as exiles. Second, at the same time, we need to live unlike the people around us. While Christians should live with the world around them, Christians should be radically different. The early church experienced explosive growth and intense persecution. But both of these stemmed from the fact that although they lived in the community and with the people around them, their lives were radically different. In fact, in another place in Peter, Peter's going to say that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what the early church experienced. They lived with the people around them, but lived radically different lives. As a community, they welcomed anyone in, regardless of their ethnicity, gender, or social class. They called all people who came to faith in Christ brothers and sisters, which would have been radical in a class-based society. They were generous to the poor and committed to life. In every Roman city, there was a place where parents could take unwanted children and just leave them on the side of the road. Christians went to those places and brought all of those children into their homes. Adoption care and caring about people and children has always been a part of the Christian church. They were radically generous to the poor, committed to life, They didn't attend Colosseum or pagan festivals. They were known as people who extended forgiveness to their worst enemies. So while the church lived in and in some ways like the society around them, they lived radically different lives. The gospel did not flourish because the early church had a program for evangelism, but because the Christians lived lives that commended the gospel. We need to live like the society around us. We need to live unlike the society around us. And third, We need to intentionally engage the people around us. In order to live on mission for Jesus, we need to understand that you have a job to intentionally proclaim the glory of Christ to the people around you. So question for each of you. When is the last time you shared the gospel? It's a really simple question. But you are a part of God's people And you have a job to proclaim the gospel to others. When is the last time you shared the gospel with someone who was not a Christian? You just opened up your mouth and said, you know, I don't know where, what you think about all this, but just know that Jesus loves you and he died for you. And all of your sins can be forgiven if you trust in him. When's the last time you shared that with someone? Consider the relationships you have in your life this morning. What relationships exist in your life solely because you want them to know Jesus. 
I understand in all of our churches, we have friendships with people in our church, and those are good and great. I commend those to you. But what are the relationships that you have in your life that exist only so you can tell them about Jesus? You've invited them to your house for meals. You've had coffee with them. You've played with their kids. Your kids play with theirs. Only, only because you want them to know Jesus. You have nothing in common with these people. What they do on the weekend looks entirely different from yours, but you are building a relationship with them to show and share Jesus. What relationships in your life exist in your life for that purpose? One more question. When is the last time, okay, maybe you think, oh, that seems like a big step, okay, I can be friends with these people. When's the last time you simply had a meal with someone who doesn't know Jesus? It's an elder qualification to show hospitality It's also commanded of every Christian. Why? Because through the simple act of sharing a meal, through that simple hospitable act, we can commend to someone in a very tiny way that Jesus cares for you and I care for you. Right? So think about this. Just what does it look like to fulfill this purpose in our lives? Well, we need to live like society around us. We need to live unlike the people around us. We need to intentionally engage the world around us. You see brothers and sisters at Grace. God, the gospel gives you a job to proclaim the glory of Christ. And grace, church, is meant to be a gospel-centered church. And a gospel-centered church is marked by breathtaking community. The gospel pulls us in where we all experience connected and loved lives with each other. But a gospel-centered church is also marked by their service and sacrifice and ministry to people who aren't in the church. The gospel pulls us into community, and the gospel sends us out on mission. As William Temple, the theologian, said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Or as John Piper famously wrote, missions exists because worship doesn't. So today we have a mission. We have a mission to see people from every tribe and tongue, our neighbors and the nations, come to know and love Jesus and worship him as their supreme treasure. Because that's the goal of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for time and your word together this morning. And I I pray that we would feel both the comfort of the gospel and the conviction of the gospel. That we would experience the comfort of the love of Jesus and know that no matter what we've done or where we've come from, we are embraced by our Savior. And at the same time, we would feel the conviction of our call, knowing that we are redeemed for a purpose, to let others know about the love of Christ. I pray that Grace Bible Church and Northwest Bible Church would be known for this. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.